questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss how ancient myths are still with us. The hero's journey monomyth is at the core of stories worldwide among indigenous people, the ancients, and our modern society. We'll explore a deeper root for this monomyth by looking at how hunter-gatherers viewed themselves within the natural and spiritual worlds through Paleolithic cave art for 40,000 years ago. Tonight's guest is a biological time author and naturalist who proposes that select cave paintings are fundamental pieces in the human journey to self-realization, the foundation of written language, and a record of biological knowledge that irrevocably impacted some of the artistic styles, religious practices, and stories that are still with us. He will address a profound archaeological elephant in the room by opening up an uncharted place in our history, which points to the cultural ancestors of mankind. He claims his work will change the idea of who you think you are. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is Bernie Taylor, an independent naturalist and author whose research explores the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient peoples. His latest book is titled Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. His website is beforeorion.com. I'm Bernie Taylor. Joins us today. Hello, Bernie, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Howdy, Mel. Glad to be on the show. Glad to have you. Well, first of all, the big question I have is why, how, and when did you start researching all of this? Well, I kind of fell into it, like like most things. You can't go searching for something that no one knows exists. Um, there's no path. And my quest started with a previous book, Biological Time, which which looked at how plants and animals are timed. How does this? How do the salmon um, know when to run up the streams and spawn? They're earlier, later from one area to the next, but they're always earlier, late together. Um, and same thing with the migrations of of wild, you know, waterfowl, geese, and ducks, and so on. And I explored that concept, and I looked at the same. Uh, migrations and movements of deer and elk and looked at the data from the primary literature and so forth and borrowed from um, fish and wildlife agencies. And I wrote a look bio- book, Biological Time. And in that book, I said to myself, you know, someone had to know this because it wasn't in the, the chronobiological literature, the biological clocks. And so I looked into the, the calendars of hunter-gatherers in North America and in the calendars, the ancients in the Mediterranean. And what I found was their calendars were all about when the the animals would be at certain places when they would harvest them. Um, and it was incorporated in their calendar. And, and someone said to me, you know, you got to look back further in that there's imagery from the caves of Europe. And I looked at the imagery from a, the Lascaux cave in the Dorgon region of France from about 17,000 years ago. And in fact, the, the nomenclature next to the animals um, was exactly the same as the timing of these animals as is depicted um, um, in the uh, or explained in the the calendars of hunter-gatherers in the United States, in North America. Um, and so it kind of all fits together, which makes sense, because they didn't have Costco's and fast food, and they just they can't just drop in for food. If they were late for the food, they starved. If they were too early for the salmon, there was no food. Um, or maybe, you know, they rounded up a deer or something. But still, they were there specifically for those those animals. 
and I, I, I wrote a book and I did lots of presentations. To, you know, I did the peer-reviewed journal thing. I uh, gave presentations to fish and wildlife agencies and conservation groups and so forth. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and I said to myself, I'm kind of ahead of where everybody else was. And so I said, I'm going to put this aside for 10 years and come back to it. Ten years later, I came back. And I had some ideas that um, kind of expounded on things I'd worked on in the past and all tied to the biological clocks of, of the animals and the cave art. And then when I started looking um, at the images, there had been a whole bunch of images that had been redated, um, much older than the, the cave at Lascaux. And one of them is in the El Castillo cave 40,000 years ago. It was called the Gallery of Discs. And this is 10 meters across, you can imagine. It's huge, so about 30 feet. And on this panel, it's it's roughly brown and or t- and tan, and down streaming down the middle of these dots. Each dot is about the size of your hand, um, and there's 90 or so in total. Kind of looks like a tree, but it runs across the middle of the panel. And I looked at that and I started counting the discs just like everybody else does, and and I reasoned to myself that you know in, in Paleolithic art, the most common character is a horse. It's typically a pregnant mare, maybe on this huge panel. It's 10 meters across. There could be a pregnant mare. So I started looking for the pregnant mare. Um, and I didn't find it until three years later. But the first thing I saw pretty quick was an elephant. And I was like absolutely amazed. Um, and it was it was different from there. There were elephants in, Af- in uh, Europe at that time. But this is not was not that type of elephant. Had The head structure was um, typical of a um, African elephant. And then I quickly saw um, a lion with a mane, which is also not typical of European art, and some other characters. And I contacted a friend from my distant past in my early 20s, or actually someone I met, an acquaintance. Um, I'm 53 now. His name is George Schaller. And George Schaller is uh, um, widely acclaimed as the world's foremost wildlife biologist. And George, um, he is the mentor of Jane Goodall and everybody you could possibly imagine um, in the history of wildlife biology. And I contacted him via email and, you know, he said, you know, you know, kind of busy. And he was he was off to Afghanistan for snow leopards or something. Um, and he's, you know, he gave me some names to contact and I contacted them. There's no response. I went back to George and said, hey, George, there's no response. He said, you know, if you send me some stuff, I'll look at it, but I'm not going to write anything because he's busy saving big cats around the world. And so George looked at things. We went back and forth on the elephant. We really couldn't determine what kind of elephant it was. But as we're doing this, other images emerged. It ultimately an image of a giraffe emerged. And which was the showstopper, because when we have a giraffe, we're not in Europe anymore because there were no giraffes in Europe during that time period. And this particular giraffe has its young, its its youth wrapped around its neck. Um, And these red discs become the camouflage. You can imagine those go across the panel. So the the giraffe is actually laying, is kind of standing on its side, horizontal across the panel. And because it's a 10 meter panel, it's actually a life size giraffe, which is fascinating. And once once we hit that, we realized that many of these other animals that we had found that were kind of iffy here or there, and they were um, African animals. And on one end of the panels is African animals, and on the other end there's European animals. And there's a space in the middle where we find a dolphin, a crab, um, and some other um, sea animals. Is it a, a seal, for example? And then we have this character above them who's swimming. So he's he's swimming from Europe to Africa. Uh, and that was the that's where George and I um, the road we went down and we, it just asked all these questions jumped out because, number one, I was sort of interested in animals, animal timing and that sort of stuff. 
and this was this was a, a story. Um, and there's there's a, there's a, two other characters of, of an older man speaking to the year year of apprentice, and the apprentice has these huge wide well, eyes. Which I don't are need to interrupt the, you, but let's sorry. go step by step. The giraffe. How did they know that giraffes existed? Was it that they actually visited Africa, or how how did that happen? Well, if you told if you if if you said to someone who had never seen a giraffe, um, just describe what a giraffe looks like, and they would have draw a picture. It probably looked like anything like a giraffe because it's an unusual right. animal. So this person must have seen a giraffe in Africa, and not only did they not only see the giraffe, but they they recognize these nuances of the giraffe that the young can actually wrap around its neck, and they have the horns and the ears of both the mother and the juvenile giraffe, um, and so. So this at this moment, this becomes the first evidence that someone from Europe had connected with someone from Africa. We talk about people migrating around the the, the Mediterranean and so forth, and um, but this this was uh, but there's no we do that via DNA. We actually have no proof that people had we previously had no proof that people migrated before before in Europe and Africa. And even evangelicals will talk about the Garden of Eden and all this sort of stuff that um, you know Africans are separate. Um, and so this shows that people, at least one individual, had gone back and forth. And he tells he transposes these images of what he saw onto this cave wall from thirty four thousand at least thirty four thousand years ago. And so from an archaeological standpoint. It's a showstopper, um, and you, you undoubtedly one end of this panel is Africa, and the other end is Europe, where there's there's a horse and there's an Iberian lynx, which are um, unique to those places. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, it changed it changed the world in that moment. The world, of course, hadn't seen that. Um, this is you know uh, me, George, and two other people had seen some of these images. About a year later, I gave a presentation. I, I gave a, um, um, a reading in a writer's group with, with about eight people and of the first chapter. And I said to them, you know, there's, there's 15 people in the world that have seen this. We're going to keep this confidential. And one of the guys said, you mean 15 including us, right? <laughs> and he was right. And this was pretty much kept close until the point that it was released um, through the ebook and released the ebook all around the world in, in one day. Um, and it's caused quite um, a bit of commotion. Um, for a number of reasons. One is that millions of people had seen this gallery of disc with this gallery of disc and focused on the red disc and didn't see the animals behind them, which is because it's an optical effect. It's a hallucinogenic. It's it's um, um, it hypnotizes you. Uh, so that's one reason. And the second is that it it drops all these theories that people you know migrated you know a few de- a few steps per year to get out of Africa into Europe. Well, people were going back and forth, and there was at least visitation, if not trade. Um, and then we have images of Homo sapiens. We have the teacher speaking to the, the apprentice. We have a, this man swimming. We have this, this hero character holding a club. Um, we have two female characters, and one has braided red hair. The man with the club has red hair as well. Um, and these these are people that have distinctly a European look, as well as a look that we find currently find in Morocco or Western North Africa among the so-called Amazon or Berber people, um, whose roots um, – predate Europe, European, modern, or at least ancient European um, conquests. Um, and so we we had these people that we, you know, we see what we looked like 34,000 years ago, which pushes back the, the effigy of humans by 10,000 years. 
And these 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 thirty four thousand euros effigies are very clear what we look like. And there's we're not just um, you know we're not we're not bubbling caveman dragon you know our kin into the into the cave. We're emotional beings. We picture this giraffe with her juvenile wrapped around her neck. We have a, a Iberian lynx whose whose kitten pushes up against the rough at her chin. Um, the cave artists weren't hunting these animals. They were learning from them. And they were especially learning from the females because most of the characters on this panel are females and females nurturing their young. While the husbands are out there hunting and gathering. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's usually that's like how, how it works in the wild. Um, in most cases, the, the, the female takes care of the young where the man, the, the father of whatever the species is, has, has already disappeared. A quick parenthesis. I don't mean to bring back, because I want to focus on the newest book, but you caught my attention with the other book, which I haven't read. I've always been curious about behavior of animals. I, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by zoology, and especially you mentioned the salmons, the fact that they don't, sure. they, they just come back to the stream where they were born against the current, or turtles and sea life that comes back to lay eggs where they were born. How does that happen? Well, more importantly is actually the timing. Um, but sea turtles and, and, and salmon have electromagnetic crystals in their heads, which an, uh, allow them to navigate along electromagnetic uh, right. fields. And whales do the same thing. Um, and so the, the more key thing is how do they do it in, t- in their synchronized timing? And it's, it's pretty simple. If you go to Alaska during the summertime, the lights are on. Uh, the, you know, the, the natural lights are on and you're up. You might you could be up for two days before you go to sleep. You've lost your sense of time uh, because of the light. And then ultimately you're going to crash. Or if you get to some dark room where there's, uh, there's no light, um, your the melatonin in your brain, in your pineal body will, will kick in and put you to sleep. Well, salmon um, are just the opposite of us. They actually migrate in the darkness and they slow down in the light. And so the light for them is not just the sun, it's the moon. And so the moon um, has a light, has light and dark period, the full moon versus the full moon, the new moon versus the full moon and so forth. And salmon actually migrate during the darker phases at night during the darker phases of the moon. And they slow down around the full moon and the, the daytime. And so the, the, so the moon is out of sync. The moon is out of sync with the sun. The, the cycle of the moon is 29 days. 12 times 29 and a half is 12 days short of 365. So if a new moon migration in year one um, could be on January 13th, it'll be on January 1st the next year. And that's, ca- that's why the, the, the migrations of salmon are early later from one year to the next. Um, and the, and that, that is the, the essence of the Native Americans' calendars. And that transposes from migratory um, birds, deer, elk, and not only just the migrations of elk – in, in the in the mid in the west migrate as do some species of deer, um, but they they not only have the migrations but they have when the when the the, the deer drop their antlers and um, when they're pregnant and so forth, and in in the in the northern Midwest it's all about the waterfowl and in in Saskatchewan and Manitoba in Canada, and their the calendars of the of the indigenous people there was the complete cycle of the waterfowl. Um, and there, it was a lunar calendar which shifted one year or the next for the same reasons. Um, so that's how that's what biological time was about. And I explore the concept of how indigenous and ancient peoples worked on this timing, um, and 
how they knew to be there when the animals would be there versus waiting for weeks. Hopefully the food would show up. Um, and that I also carry that concept into before Orion because I, I looked at these animals in the panel and I can actually there's a there's a fledging eagle, which tells it, Golden Eagle at that, which is a mid-June time period in that part of the world. There's not this is Iberian with links with a kid, very young kitten. Um, again, we have a mid-June time period. So we can go through these animals in the panel and we can date this. We could date or well, time it. To tell us when it was, which is a fascinating concept. And we, you would do that today. If you looked out, if you were to paint a picture and you went out out in your front porch, um, you'd be painting something with green. You probably wouldn't be doing a winter time scene, and you might be painting, you know, some blue jays and you know maybe some mosquitoes, a, a squirrel running around, that sort of stuff, and um, a deer who who um, you know a male deer that has very small antlers. Because at this time of year, well, these these Paleolithic artists did the same thing. They depicted what they saw at that time in their in their universe, um, and so it's it's a time and place essence. So this biological clock perspective they had from the past carried forth into this book, but it it took a huge huge twist because it brought me into mythology, which I was previously not too um, too savvy about. Um, and so I really had to look at the, you know, the mythological literature, which took me to Young, Carl Young, and Joseph Campbell. Which is very important, of course. And when I think of these caves, they're all over the world. And there's some similarities sometimes in the pigmentation that they use. Have you found similarities between caves that whose inhabitants were not supposed to know each other but it's not supposed to be connected yes there's um well the the actual drawings on the cave are different but the mythology is the same and that's important so in native americans for example they they lived in berengia for 10,000 years before they came down into onto the great plains and in berengia um, they didn't have huge resources for rock art and whatever rock art they did use is now covered by um, ice and snow and berengia wasn't sh- sh- bearing straight it was a huge landmass that they lived on so whatever they have there is now gone and when they traveled south they lost those um those animals that they saw up there. So um, in the Midwest, the Native Americans weren't etching seals, for example, um, or a salmon because they didn't exist in their environment. But what they did is they kept stories, um, core stories of the the essence of what they saw. Um, and one of the stories that we find is this um, the cosmic hunt of Ursa Major the bear. And we find in the Paleolithic images, we find this this bear. And in the in the springtime, she's she's moving along her small cubs, and um, right sort of along the horizon during the uh, midsummer, the the cubs stand and she stands, which is same as Ursa Major, just sort of tips in the sky sideways. It's sort it's, it becomes um, vertical, and then going into the winter, the uh, as Ursa as the bear goes into the den, Ursa Major turns around, so kind of turns around and becomes horizontal again. Um, in the night sky, it goes around that circle, and then it disappears into the into the night because the bear has disappeared into the, ca- into the cave. Well, we can find this image in the Paleolithic caves, the two Paleolithic caves in Europe, but we also find it in the mythology um, in, in in ancient Greece, and we find it in Native Americans. 
fundamentally the same story. As far as as far east as the Housatonic um, Indi- Indians in and the Micmacs and so on in the um, the northeast of the United States. Um, so where we lose the we might not have the same art cave art techniques, but we do have the same myths. And one of the common myths or characters in these myths, or two of them, are Cirrus as a dog and Orion as a hunter. And you know, if you look to the night sky, the most easily recognizable character is Orion because he, he looks like us, like as a character looks like us. But Cirrus as a Cirrus doesn't look like a dog. It's a bright star. And then people, we have Canis Major, the constellation, and everybody who draws Canis Major draws as the dog they know. So if you have a lab, you're going to draw as a lab. If you know you were back in time, you'd whatever animal was there. And so there's we don't have um, a consistency in, in the actual dog, but we have either Cirrus as a dog or Canis Major um, constellation as a dog. So we carry these myths throughout time, and we carry them across continents. Um, and so Orion is, you know, we see it as a man, but why Cirrus as a dog? When I'm thinking of the constellations, I wonder what you're saying. Do you think that it was modern astronomy that assigned the actual features, you know, Orion and and all the others. And one one and, and I like to discuss with you because you're in, you're into astronomy too. Ophiuchus, why don't we just don't seem to be talking too much about Ophiuchus. But was the ancient the, the ancient ones who actually portrayed the constellations as something tangible, the bull and the bear and and so on, or did that come later? Um, good question. Um, some of the some of the core constellations have been around um, for a very long time. So Orion, Ursa Major, the, the bear, um, Cirrus as the dog, um, and Pleiades as a group of people, typically women, um, and that pro- Orion pursues the women, and that's told around the world. But we, but not all constellations are. So the constellation of uh, Pegasus is seen as a horse in that's called the, the European Western world into um, the Mediterranean, where it's not seen as a horse in North America among Native Americans. So there was some split between peoples. Well, in this particular cave, um, this uh, the gallery of discs in the El Castillo cave, we have a number of characters that go across this panel. And on the, the European side, we have a man with the eagle and there's the horse. And then there's the, there's the crab, the, uh, the seal, the, the dolphin, the seal, and um, another man, which is on the, the African side, and above him we have this Barbary ape. We have uh, Leo the lion. We have the um, we have Ursa Major, Cygnus. Um, we have a great auk, which is a now extinct bird. And there's an is an image you haven't seen, which is a crocodile. Well, we can go. We can follow those constellations around in the Greek Greek record. Um, start from one end. That man was. Um, the man is Hercules. Then we go to Agia, the eagle. We have Pegasus, the horse. Um, they saw um, the crab move to another part of the sky and it became Cancer. Um, the the dolphins become Pisces. Cetus is the, the constellation Cetus. Seal monster, sea monster is the seal. We have Orion at the other end of the panel, and above them we have the Gemini becomes the eyes of the of the Barbary ape. Leo is the lion. Ursa Major is the bears. Um, Cygnus is the great auk, and Draco is the crocodile. So the ancient Greeks and others had been to these caves, and they looked at them. Um, 
and they they recognize they had, there's a few constellations that they knew. So the ancient Babylons, for example, they had or at Hercules and Orion, a bunch of others, um, as well as the Egyptians. And they that were in their mythology. And then they filled in the blanks with these other constellations that they saw from the Paleolithic past. So we so we had some constellations um, in ancient times, but we refound constellations from at least thirty four thousand years ago um, and brought them into the record. Ptolemy, um, the astronomer, the, the Greek astronomer, he's there's a lot of questions about him because he has lots of constellations that he couldn't even have seen from from where he lived, and the and so the, our um, astronomers have said, well, you know, he's a fraud, you know, the greatest fraud in history because he actually creates a night sky that he can't see. Well, all those constellations that Ptolemy c- couldn't see are actually in these Paleolithic caves. So maybe he or his one of his associates had actually seen this night sky in the caves and brought that into the, to fill the Greek record. What about Ophiuchus? I mentioned that before. So I don't know Ophiuchus. How do you spell Ophiuchus? Ophiuchus is spelled, if I remember correctly, O-F-F, or actually O-P-H-I-U-C-H-U-S. And it's uh, it's the serpent bear. Maybe that's going to ring a bell to you. I see. Okay, spell the, okay, Ophiuchus, the serpent bear. Um, true to images. So, is it man grasping a serpent? Exactly. Okay, which is the I'm gonna look at an image, and it's in the night sky near. Um, Ophiuchus is. It's below Hercules. So I don't I don't see that. I don't see that one in the – I don't see Ophiuchus in the Paleolithic record. It's kind of in the middle between uh, – what's December? That would be Capricorn and uh, uh, what comes after Scorpio. Okay. So this is important. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a concept called precession. People also yeah, have a exactly. precession of the equinoxes. Yeah, well, the equinoxes. Well, precession is the, – the, the earth wobbles like a, t- like a top. And so, you know, every few thousand years – so based on where you are, if you could live for thousands of years, you would see different stars appearing and disappearing below the horizon. Okay. Um, and people talk about precession of the equinoxes is when the the constellations or you know zodiac constellations arrive at the same place at the on the equinox. Okay. Um, and I don't this the concept of the precession of the equinoxes has a lot of problems, and the number one problem is that. These these artists, these Paleolithic artists, created images for where they were at that time, not everything tied to the equinoxes. And so people try to, you know, pre, you know, take Egyptian images, for example, the pyramids, and they say, well, everybody used processional equinoxes, and if the Sphinx points towards is Leo and it points towards the east, it must be an e- a processional equinox marker, and we can time everything back back. But it actually didn't work that way um, because people, wherever they were, used the image um, that they saw when they looked at, when they stepped out, their porch of sorts. And they saw that night sky at that time with the animals in their environment. Um, and so you, we, we can't say everything's the procession equinox. But we can say, because um, astronomy itself, is that they would have seen different stars at different times. And the, the one that you just mentioned, they might not have, I have to go, I'd have to go back and look at the astronomy program, but they might not have been able to see at that time. But I don't see it in the, it's not a character that I see um, in the panels. Um, 
but it's it's an interesting one. That's okay. I just wanted to bring it up. But let me just stay for a moment with Beringia, the theory of Beringia. A lot of people talk about the, well, especially the religious ones, they talk about the cosmic egg, Adam and Eve, the Eden, and so on. But then we have the four groups. We have the uh, the Negroid, the Mongoloid, the Caucasoid, and the Australoid, and the different areas of the world, which to me, Beringia, uh, during the last ice age, I can see how that is what caused the bridge between Alaska and Siberia for them to come down all the way down to, what could we say, Patagonia, all the way down to South America, sure. right? So yes. what about the rest of the people? Where did they come from? What do you mean? What do you mean the rest? Well, of the, the Europeans. You have the Nordics. You have the white ones, and then you have the yeah. That's a good question. Right. Yeah. So, so my, um, in the prior to a year and a half ago, the world, I mean, all the scientists and anthropologists and everybody else, um, looked at Western North Africa as the roots to civilization, and because that's the oldest dating of Homo sapiens to about 180,000 years ago, and a year ago, this past January. Uh, a paper was released that um, bones were identified at 300,000 years ago in Morocco at Jebel Air Hood um, in, a, in, a, in a collapsed cave, which changed everybody's idea because we now um, have to consider there are multiple genesis of peoples. Um, and maybe we don't have – there might not be a direct DNA line, but we can have cultural artifacts. We can have myths and stories and many things that were transferred down that didn't have to be through some sort of bloodline. Um, and so there, my, my sense on this one is that there actually there – were, there were original people, um, and those people mixed and they spread out, and they came back together and so far and so forth over hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. Um, but there's multiple genesis of culture. And by culture, I don't just mean tool technology, I mean stories and myths and so forth. And we, the world is now looking, it's not just me, because I wrote this, because I didn't realize, I wrote this whole thing with everything pointing towards Morocco um, and the, the exchange between the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and, and West North Africa. I wrote this whole book that way. And then Jebel Hurt pops out, the find in, in, the, in the media, and I was like, wow, it's the same, it's the same place. Because this, the, the, the hero travels to Morocco, um, and so now we have this, we have this, this record of people in, in, um, in Morocco, and people in Europe are are, are called Caucasoid. It has nothing to do with their skin color or anything else that people have come up with around the world for a different, you know, racial. Even things. in northern but, India, they're considered Caucasoid. They're <laughs> exactly they are yes. Um, and that's why people of India look very much like the people of Europe. Um, and um, so we have these these Caucasoid people in Europe, but we've also have Caucasoid people in West North Africa that predate the, the European conquests um, or the, the, the conquests of Moroccans into Europe, which, which also happened. Um, now, what's interesting about this, this gallery, this image, is we have two redheaded people. Um, one is a woman with, red, with braided red hair, and we have a man holding a club, and he's got red hair as well. So we have these – we have redheads from 34,000 years ago, and in this one redhead has definitely traveled into, into to Africa. And among the, the, the Saharan Tuareg people um, who have been there for a very long time, it predates our historical record, there's this reddish blondness in the population. Um, and they, they're also Caucasite people. Um, 
and they um, so that we have this history of these Caucasoid people, uh, and we have a history of Sub-Saharan Africans, and there's not a big genetic mix between the two for for historical reasons. And then we have people in, of course, in um, Asia and Mongolia and so forth. So there appears to have been since since these people in these cave in this cave that we can see all the details of their character of their features look just like people from Europe today. We can take this you know pretty small leap that people don't change the the character the facial characteristics or in features of people don't change very much over time. Um, there's all kinds of DNA theories, but it, it's not happening because we can see people that look just like Europeans today. Um, which changes um, a lot of ideas about a lot of things, but there are probably there was probably a multiple genesis of people, um, multi- or people around the world, and they um, which brought forth what we have today. And of course, this, um, there's biblical stories that, um, that all these people spread out around the world. But you know, maybe there um, that that biblical myth goes back deeper in time, long before any any Bible, of course, um, that there were original peoples from different places and they spread out and, and they each formed their own characteristics. And, but we, and we can see it now through this, these images of 34,000 years ago, which is a bit of a sh- showstopper. Um, and, uh, you know, I look at the, I'm humbled whenever I look at this and people say to me, you know, wow, you made a big discovery. I didn't because number one is, People made these images, and the people who made these images were beyond the genius of a Picasso or a um, Da Vinci or a Michelangelo or an Einstein. They were far beyond that. It's the genius of individuals over you might find every five, ten thousand years. Um, so number one, I didn't discover it, and number two is that the ancients in, in Mediterranean had seen these images because they have the exact same stories and use the exact same order of the constellations and so forth. So it's like, I'm re- if I, if I did, I didn't actually discover anything. I rediscovered things that people in the ancient times had already seen and used and carried on that we can still see today. Um, so I, I'm only humbled by what I see and what I find uh, with due respect to everybody that came before me that, had this incredible uh, vision to see what the the many millions of us couldn't couldn't comprehend. The more I conduct interviews about all these subjects, the more I realize in the end how much I don't know. Instead of answering one question, a hundred pop up. You know, we discuss sometimes the 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 story of Adam and Eve, and the fact that they had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. So if they had three sons. Where did the rest of of us come from? But that's it. Well, go ahead. Well, the other one is I think it was in, inherit the wind. The question is brought up um, in, in the play. Well, you know, Cain and Abel fight with each other over a woman. Well, where'd she come exactly. from? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And they hardly ever talk about Seth. They only talk about Cain and Abel. But you that's mentioned right. the red-headed mummies. This is something that has fascinated me for the last 10, 15 years. So I didn't say the mummies. I said the characters. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of the mummies that have been found in, in for example, in China. And they're yes. all from Europe and Asia. And even the yeah. Chinese, you probably know this, they have pyramids in China where they have found a lot of these red-headed mummies, and they pay farmers to farm on top of these pyramids so that the world doesn't know about it. Apparently, the Sinos, they are very, they don't want people to think that there were others 
in that area that preceded them. Same thing with the Egyptians. The Egyptians say, no, we were the ones who built the pyramids. But then you find a redheaded person there, and you think, wait a second, what it, what truly happened? And when you say Genesis, what is your definition of Genesis? How did these people manifest themselves on this planet? Absolutely. Um, well, I think that, and I one thing I, as we I emailed, I don't talk about the last chapter of the book, okay? And that people have to take their own journey to get there. But this is what I believe. And this is how I would describe an early Genesis, is that there, there came a time when the people, real, when people, um, very primitive people, realized that they could tell time. And I believe that the first character people who did that were um, something a step above the chimpanzee, and that they recognized the the females in the population, their menstrual cycle is on sync with the moon, and they going back to my biological time work, and that they they recognized that that they um, they could go escape from animals. Or, you know, catch food at certain times of the moon. Um, and chimpanzees in the wild, as, as well as gorillas, naturally are entrained to these light dark cycles. But there came one, there came one, or many animals, or chimpanzee like animals over time, that females recognized that they could go to the seashore um, and collect, you know, seashells at the, you know, at the full moon at the high tide when they could see it, um, and that the food was there. I should say the full moon, the low tide, a low tide, the lowest of the low tides at the full moon. They could go, they can go to the seashore and all the, the shells were there. And so they, they, they came to realize that they could time themselves, their own biology um, to those, to that of uh, the natural world to, you know, escape from predators and collect food. Okay. And which is, it's quite useful. Um, and as opposed to reaction to the light and dark cycles, because then now plan ahead. But you can't actually plan ahead too far because you don't know how many how many moons to do something. To know how many moons to do something, they had to start had to have a, a, a solar year of sorts. And the sun doesn't change much from one day in, next to monitor, so it's kind of tough, and the weather and so forth is, is variable. What you can do is time from the stars. And I believed that I believe that there was um, and and some step above the chimpanzee that looked to the night sky and saw Orion and even maybe even stood up, put its hand up and said, I am one with these stars because I look like these stars. And so this was an animal that came, that, a being that came to be able to pattern um, up the stars and pattern other things in their environment, just like we create art, we pattern things. And through seeing or observing Orion in the night sky, they saw Orion come and go throughout the seasons, which created a a year calendar that went along with their their solar solar calendar, and so they can travel throughout the year. And they might even had stories, just as we do as indigenous people today, of Orion that when certain times of the year they have certain activities. Um, and so I believe that Orion was the key one. And of course, Orion is then followed by his dog because people have had dogs based on these cave images for at least 35,000 years ago. Um, and so Orion was that that I don't call it consciousness, but the, the recognition of Orion was some sort of genesis. And then they started filling in the night sky with the characters, Ursa Major's a bear um, and so forth. And that became its own genesis. And people, whether in your in Africa and Morocco or in, so, in southern Iberian Peninsula, would have had different stars in the night sky or different assemblages of stars than people in Australia. And so I would describe those as multiple genesis. 
um, and that they were they were parallel lines of thought because they each had Orion, they each had a, a seer, Orion as the hunter, um, and they all identify pretty much identify Pelides as a group of women, um, but they each developed these other stars in their repertoire that was a genesis of culture, um, which is completely different from DNA. And they started to tell their own stories with these same fundamental myths, and that the in the Paleolithic record, um, we in this image we have a giraffe. Well, we don't have giraffes in Australia, so they but they will have another animal that fills in the pattern of that constellation. And then as people went, uh, Native Americans came over from Beringia. Um, when they arrived, there were horses. Horses clearly died off. Lots of uh, theories about that. But they didn't have Pegasus, the horse, as the ancient um, people in Europe or um, the Greeks, or the prehistoric people in, in um, Europe in these Pelagic images. So they lost Pegasus and they put another constellation in that place to tell the story of what happens at that time of year in their place that was meaningful to their world. So that's how I would describe the genesis of these different cultures. And I'm, you know, what I just said to you in the last two minutes as a description is pretty far out there in any possible circle you could imagine from astronomy to archaeology to anthropology because there's no one's looking at the world this way. But I'm, I'm so many years ahead through having worked on this book that I, I can see things that are not in our in our record and in our, our thought. Um, and it's a fascinating place to be. And you use the word myth. When I think of people with myth – and people who were visionaries and saw things that others didn't see, and they probably ridiculed. I'm thinking of the Dogon. You know the story of Sirius yeah. B. And this was discovered in uh, <laughs> 1862 by, what's his name, Alvin Graham Clark. But then yeah. some people, some explorers went to, the, to Mali and West Africa and found the Dogon tribe, who are descendants of the Egyptians, and their lore and their myth talks about, and this is in the 1930s, that they said, yes, we know that they have a sister star, uh, Sirius, but they probably didn't use the name Sirius B, but they knew where it was. And the question is, scientists didn't have the ability to photograph th th that star until 1970. This is an invisible star. Then what is a myth then? And you can give me your explanation as to how did they go new? But I remember my conversation with Michael Tellinger, and he said the definition of myth is affidavits signed by priests and kings. Your take on that? Yes. Um, well, there's a few questions there. One of them has to do is where does myth come from? And I would say that myth is something that once happened. And that's not my original idea. That comes from Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst Jung. And then we built on that myth. So that myth had a meaning in a different in a different time that was real. And in the case of Ursa Major, um, I presented earlier that in the springtime, she's with her cubs um, along the horizon. And then she rises into the night sky kind of sideways, um, vertical. And then she turns her back and going into the winter. Well, 34,000 years ago, Ursa Major was right on the horizon in, in the summer, in the, in the early spring. And bears would have been seeing the horizon. And so these Paleolithic people would have, you know, seen the bear and they would have seen Ursa Major at the, you know, because night. Um, 
because bears are primary nocturnal, and they would have, um, you know, put the, you know, the two together. And so we then have this myth that travels around the world of Ursa Major, and the story gets changed a little bit from, from one culture to another. And so the myth was something that was true that happened, but over time we, we build on that myth to make it more interesting or to make it more applicable to, this, to a new environment that we're like in. Like a grapevine effect, you mean? Kind of like yeah, very much like a, a great a grapevine effect. And as the myth changes, it becomes a much more interesting story than just the bear, the mother bear protecting her cubs in the springtime and then rising as they start to stand in the summer. They um, they, they rise with her and then turn their back and in the, in the, going into the winter. Um, and that the, Hus- the Hustonic people have a a myth of you know a bunch of animals, um, primarily birds, chasing the bear throughout the seasons. And one of the bear, one of the one of the birds, um, um, and, and one of the birds um, gets bled, and then the, the the blood falls in the trees, which explains why we have red maples in the fall, okay, or maple leaves in the fall. Um, and so the stories get more interesting as as we go throughout time. So there, so I, I'll go, so kind of my work is ideas are predating what Tellinger, where Tellinger is. And so all myths have a, were made for a specific time and place where they were real. Now, why are myths important? Um, myth, myths are at the core of our being. In the United States, we have the myth of democracy. And the Koch brothers' myth of a democracy is completely different than Bernie Sanders' <laughs> myth of, of a democracy. Especially about immigration. <laughs> About freaking any, everything. And so it's – but so democracy – since we have – we all don't see democracy as see the same thing, but we have this this myth that demo, that in a democratic society we all have a vote and it will all work for us. And of course that doesn't work because the Bloombergs and the Kochs have you know millions of more power votes than we have and we individually have. Okay. Um, so we, but we still have the Smith, and if we don't have the Smith, we'd have a revolution because we think that you know the you know either the Bernie Sanders or the Koch brothers are stealing right out of our pocket, depending on which side you stand on. Uh, so myths are important um, wherever they are to keep a a um, a unity of people, and when the myth splits, um, such as the the Sunni and the Shiites among Islam, they go to war. Or in in um, early times, the Protestants and the Catholics in the United, in what is now the United Kingdom, they fought for hundreds of years over, you know, who whether there should be a pope or not, um, or of course the different Protestants and Catholics are also whether they're saints, um, and whether you can buy your way into heaven and all that sort of stuff, and so when you when you break the myth, you break the unity, and people um, have a hard time carrying on without many revolutions. So myths, myths are really important to us, and these myths that go back to the Paleolithic, they're they're about people and they're about our relationship with the natural world, and if whether or not you if you lived in the north of Spain or the south of Spain or into um, into into Africa, you could have fundamentally had the same myths, and you could have understood the people that you're speaking to and you could tell the story and you know they might wince and say you know really it's about the you know the bear trips or something and whereas a pair you know turns up to the night and but so they have their own nuances and so on which they, they'll expand back and forth but it's the common myths that keep us together there's a christianity there's many of course many forms of christianity but there's this common 
myth within Christianity of a resurrection and that we can all go – we can all – Jesus died for our sins and we can all go to heaven in the future. And whatever, whatever you – wherever you are, um, you're an atheist, an agnostic or born again, whatever the story is, you still accept that as a common myth. Whether or not it's true, it's, it's a common myth. Um, and so Christians around the world can fundamentally unite. Um, they can vote for the same president in the, or the same political party because they share a common belief. You know, they're, they're the, an arrow moving forwards. Um, so myths are, have important to us in the, important to us in the present time as they were in our distant past because through these myths we're able to share stories and share knowledge and connect with people that were that we didn't see on a daily basis maybe not for years or generations and that we, we became one people with a common goal that we could as opposed to you know you know killing the the you know the, the ethnic minority down the road sort of thing um, they it's so we had that common – we had those common beliefs that held us together. And these images in the Paleolithic, they carry on for tens of thousands of years. How many religions can you think of that have lasted more than 2,000 years? Um, I'm not sure. More, more than 2,018 years. Um, not too many. And But these people carried on for at least tens of thousands of years because we see the common mythology in the Paleolithic art, which is absolutely fascinating. So there's something that they had in the imagery and in their myths that had this common belief that kept their world or their cosmos in order. But you said something interesting about the monomyth and about mythology. When I'm thinking of religions, as you mentioned, Christianity, for example, it divided Constantinople, and you had the Orthodox going to Russia and so on. And mm-hmm. you have Islam dividing the Shias and the Sunnis and the Kurds and so on. And you see all these wars all the time. But I'm thinking, what we're seeing in caves, paintings, are now considered ancient myths, correct? They're prehistoric right. myths. But let's say that yeah. today's organized religions were to vanish. The tales would yeah. still be available to future generations as myths wouldn't they of course so if the lights went out to if the lights went out today and you know i couldn't speak over the internet and we had no more communications and um and and all the the you know the books you know went back to sand over thousands of years in this dystopia you know world people would still be telling the same stories they would uh, you know perhaps they would tell the story of mel and bernie on the on um on the the voices that flew through the air um, and that you, you know, quizzed me and questioned me about, you know, the, the truths of the world. And I came back with, with I'm not really sure what the answer is, but this is what I can tell you. And um, which is probably what happened in Greek society with Plato and Socrates and, and Aristotle, that they were questioned um, by the powers that be. And the, so the, the myths would carry on through our um, through the stories that we tell. And we would fundamentally have the same stories. We'd have this story, this monomyth that Joseph Campbell describes as the hero's journey. And in this monomyth, well, actually, there's kind of two basic stories that are around the world. One is the hero goes, the person goes on a journey, the hero, or a stranger enters the room. And you can go through any TV program, movie, and you kind of find those two themes or some combination of them. But in the hero's journey story, uh, an individual places leaves a place of normality where they're bored. 
Um, and they're, they go on a quest to a faraway place. And that faraway place is often in the mind, such as um, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Um, but sometimes the faraway places across time and space, as Luke Skywalker did um, in Star Wars. Um, or Fro- Frodo does as he, he goes to return the ring um, into Mordor. And on, on this journey, the, the, the hero picks up well, – he's not a hero at that point, but he, he becomes a hero. But he picks up friends and helpers and, and magical types of um, help. Um, and in, for, of course in Frodo, he gets the, the – the, um, the blanket that can vanish him. He has this, this, this sword sting, a dagger that tells him when Oryx going to be there. There's all these magical devices that are given to him. Um, and Luke is given the, the, the lightsaber and the power of the force. Um, and Dorothy is ultimately has these ruby slippers that kind of send her back home. Uh, and the, the, so we all, they're all given these magical, um, even, so even in the, the modern or the, Postmodern um, Star Wars. We have these magical devices or beliefs. So, so all the, and they all pick up their own little friends. And uh, for you know, of course, in Star Wars, the 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 mechanical two of the mechanical figures. One is um, um, CP3O and um, RTD2. And you know, one of those is the Tin Man. Okay, um, and we we carry the we carry these characters that we, that help us on um, forts and they they help us and assist us and they challenge us but it, we ultimately have to face our fear alone and the the fear uh, could be of a monster um or darth vader or a dragon um whatever that might be the evil witch and the fear it's conquering the this the fear of this of this creature this being is really an internal process because if you if you believe that you can overcome your fears, you can battle the dragon. If you can't overcome your fears, you, you're not going to do real well battling the dragon. It's just a thing. Um, and so it's a self confidence in in the struggle. And so you, the hero battles the dragon or the monster that be, and if successful, becomes the hero, um, and then returns back with the story of their quest to tell that to another generation. And we tell this this fundamental hero's journey story is told throughout peoples around the world. And the characters might be a um, a religious spiritual figure. It could be a um, a Frodo type character. In the Chinese, it's the myth of journey to the west, and the, the main character is a, a monk who travels to the west to receive the, to return the sacred scrolls. And one of his sidekicks is a magical monkey named Sun Wukong who um, can fly and all these sort of things. And, and he gets big and he can fight and he has, and it, what's fascinating at the, the end of the, he gets the scrolls. It takes years to get to the place to get the scrolls, which I believe is an travels from like um, Eastern China to sorry, Eastern China to India. Um, and then in just, and then he gets the scrolls and then Sun Wukong, the monkey, puts them on a um, cloud, which they float quickly back to the, the emperor to return the sacred scrolls. Well, why the heck in this story did he have to go through all these trials and tribulations um, and years to get there when he, Sun Wukong could have just flown him on the, the um, cloud, which is the same way as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, she clicks her slippers and gets back home. Um, and... So we we have these fundamental stories, fundamental stories within us that keep our societies in order. They tell us about ourselves, and when we tell these stories to our children, 
and other people, we're expressing our societal norms, the myths that keep us together, whether that be democracy or some sort of religion um, or whatever ism is out there. But they keep us together without breaking apart so we're not constantly at war. If we didn't have the myths, we couldn't exist as the cohesive units we are. I'll ask you this and I'll get you answer on the other side once we break. But you probably have heard the similarities between Egyptian mythology and Christianity. You have, have you? Yes, okay. of course. Yeah. Horus was born on the winter uh, of the virgin of a virgin mother on the mm-hmm. winter solstice or December 25th. And then I, I could sure. spend an hour talking about the similarities between Jesus, Horus, Isis, the Virgin Mary, and so on. So what used to be probably fact to the Egyptian population or civilization now turned into myth. Could there be a future time here in the next 100 years, 1,000 years? Because this was Horus was around 5,000 years ago. Then the story of Jesus, 2000 or 2018. What would happen in the next 2,000 years or 1,000 years or 2,000 years in the future? Do you think they'll refer to Christianity as the same mythology we refer off the Egyptian mythology today? And I'll get your answer on the other side. I want to explore this. I know this is not part of your of your book, but I, I know that you have some some knowledge about it. How can people buy Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero and your other book? Sure. It's uh, well, Biological Time is out of print. Uh, Before Orion is available in ebooks everywhere that ebooks exist. It's a full color book. It's $9.99 as an ebook. Um, and if it was a print book, it'd be about a $60 book. It's a huge monumental color work. Um, so it's a great um, save some trees. Let's do it. <laughs> Are you planning to bring the other book back in the future? Um, there's so many components of biological time that I brought into before Ryan. And by ha- a full third of biological time were um, statistics and tables. I mean, it was a scientific work, um, a, actually, quantitative scientific work. So I probably, I'm sitting on that, that idea. Fair enough. And your website is beforeorion.com, correct? That's right. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. Much more to discuss with Bernie Taylor. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.